Welcome to Gesundheit with Jacobus, highlighting health, healing, and healthy lifestyles with your host, Jacobus Hollowline. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be back uh, with you today. It's uh, This is Gesundheit with Jacobus. We're on every Sunday morning from 7 to 10 talking about health, healing, and healthy lifestyles. I invite the experts, ask them to come on the program either by phone or in the studio and talk about their specialty. Let them enjoy themselves uh, for three hours talking about passions, talking about what they feel is the right thing to do and uh, in the field of either Western medicine or natural or alternative medicine. And as always, I want to remind you that, um, you know, the health and healing aspect of uh, medicine, medicine in general, is a tricky one. And so I always suggest that uh, as we talk about things today, doing any program, we're not here to prescribe or diagnose or treat. We're here to educate, inform, and entertain. And we hope that you take the information to um, either go on the internet, read books that are available, read periodicals, talk to a physician or a specialist of your own choice, and then educate yourself further so you become as you become more educated, you can ask smarter questions to the people involved who you are going to for help. I tell you that what we're going to do today, uh, we are going to continue our talk with Dr. Bruce Lipton, who was on at the end of May talking about his book, The Biology of Belief, which has become a bestseller. And anybody who is reading it is just totally happy and amazed. I should say they're amazed with the information, but at the same time, it makes so many people so happy because they recognize so many things about themselves in the book, the way it is written, the way it is explained through a scientist, which is Dr. Bruce Lipton, who is a cell biologist. So let me tell you a little bit about him, and then what we're going to do is we're going to recap what we discussed in the first show, and then we'll jump right on into the second part of the program. Now, obviously, as any time as we are discussing things, you want to call in, give us that call at 5870171, get involved with the topic. Dr. Bruce Lipton is an internationally recognized authority in bridging science and spirit. He has been a guest speaker on dozens of TV and radio shows, as well as a keynote presenter for national conferences. Now, some of the things we're going to say here during the introduction, you will get a slight explanation about what we will be discussing. And I think it is very helpful for most of you, especially those who did not tune in in May and uh, are brand new at this whole thing. Dr. Lipton began his scientific career as a cell biologist. He received his PhD from the University of Virginia in Charlottesville before joining the Department of Anatomy at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine in 1973. Dr. Lipton's research on muscular dystrophy, studies employing cloned human cells, stem cells, focused upon the molecular mechanisms controlling cell behavior. An experimental tissue transplantation technique developed by Dr. Lipton and a colleague, Dr. Ed Schulz, and published in the journal Science, was subsequently employed as a novel form of human genetic engineering. But in 1982, Dr. Lipton began examining the principles of quantum physics and how they might be integrated into his understanding of the cell's information process, uh, information processing system. So about his understanding of the cell's information processing systems. He produced breakthrough studies on the cell membrane, which revealed that this outer layer of the cell was an organic homologue of a computer chip, the cell's equivalent of a brain. His research at Stanford University School of Medicine between 87 and 92 revealed that the environment operating through the membrane controlled the behavior and physiology of the cell, turning genes on and off. 
His discoveries, which ran counter to the established scientific view that life is controlled by the genes, presaged one of today's most important fields of study, the science of epigenetics. Two major scientific publications derived from these studies defined the molecular pathways connecting the mind and body. Many subsequent papers by other researchers have since validated this concept and ideas. And we're going to continue more about this introduction when we come back in the second hour. But Dr. Lipton, I really appreciate you coming back. I know you want us to call you Bruce, so I say, yeah. Bruce, good morning. Back to Bozeman. Welcome back. Thank you so much, Jacobus. I, I certainly appreciate this very much. Thank you. And I know that you're such a busy man, and for you to get up at 6 in the morning or even before that to be with us on the program here at 7 in the morning on the Montana time, uh, I, it, it shows uh, true dedication, and I appreciate you doing this. <laughs> I, I, thank you so much. I'm surprised because I'm very familiar with 6 o'clock in the evening, but I, I didn't know that much about 6 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good point. Now, we, uh, as we were discussing in the first in the first. Uh, uh, show there's so much obviously uh, I don't even know if we're going to get through everything in two shows but uh, I think what we need to do is maybe recap a little bit about what you what you did and maybe the most important thing is what was your discovery when you were actually checking cells out for all these years you've done research for more than 40 years what happened all of a sudden to you what did you discover well I, I was working on as you mentioned cloned stem cells and so I was removing uh cells, uh, stem cells from, from uh, animals and from people, and growing them in tissue culture, and, and just so even we should start with the concept of a stem cell, because people talk about that a lot, and so let, let's give uh, a definition of what that really represents, and that is, in every one of us, everyone who's listening to this show right now, within their body, scattered throughout their body, are the equivalent of embryonic cells. These cells haven't, uh, you know, specialized or, or differentiated into specific things like muscle, bone, or skin. They're just sort of like reserve cells. The function of the stem cells is to go through the body, and then if we damage our tissues or our organs, the stem cells come in just like embryonic cells and replace the damaged tissues and cells. So theoretically, uh, if we hurt ourselves or damage ourselves, or even as we're aging, uh, older uh, cells that are, are wor not working as well uh, get replaced by these stem cells. So we, we should maintain our health and actually uh, much more of our youth than we do right now. Right. Uh, and, and these stem cells, as I said, are, are available to all of us. Now, the, the interesting thing about it is, is apparently uh, in a lot of people, it appears that these stem cells don't even work because they get damaged, they have problems, or they age very quickly and, they, and these cells aren't replacing uh, the damaged tissue. So the, what, what has happened is that these stem cells have become a, a, a research source of working on, on, on cells that we can manipulate, cells that we can maybe turn into new brain cells or new heart cells. And so scientists, uh, especially in pharmaceutical industries, are doing a lot of research on isolating stem cells and trying to you know, encourage them to become very specific cells so that they can control how these cells are, are going to develop so that, let's say, someone has a neurological problem, then the intention is if I have these stem cells, I, I should be able to program them to replace the brain tissue. Well, the, the interesting thing that always excites me as a biologist is the concept that, well, wh why are we working so hard to make them work when, in fact, I mean, we were given stem cells when we were born, and they've been in our biology for millions of years. 
uh, it's like a joke to me, I think. And some people, uh, I talk to people, I say, well, what, what do you think? God gave you these stem cells that, and didn't teach you how to use them, but right. they're waiting for the pharmaceutical industry to figure it out. Yes. Uh, that's a silly point. Of course, the question is, if we have stem cells, we're not using them, they're not working, and they're not helping us, then the question is, why? So, um, I worked on stem cells, as you mentioned. I started working on stem cells in 1967 yeah. and cloning them. And here's one of the surprises I found out, that I would take these the stem cells and put them in a tissue culture and grow, grow them for a while. So a large colony of cells all derived from the same mother cell. Hey, Bruce, Bruce, Bruce yeah. I want to ask you one quick question. Yeah. When you work with stem cells, are you working them with the what we call the non-differentiated stem cells or the differentiated, the, the adult the stem cells? The non-differentiated ones, yes, exactly. So the, yes, ones exactly. That, the ones that grow between day five and day nine of conception. Well, and, well they actually, they appear then, but then they're there for the rest of your life as well. There's okay. the, the derivatives of these are there. So that they don't, these are the ones that have all the potential, and these are the ones that the pharmaceutical companies are trying to figure out how to elicit that potential. Correct. And, and I was working with them, uh, and what I found was this. It was what I would create a culture where all the cells were genetically identical because they came from the same parent cell. And then I would do is take some of these cells and put them into one Petri dish uh, with very specific environmental culture medium, the conditions of the environment, and they would form uh, muscle cells. Mm-hmm. I, I take a, another group from the same colony, so they were genetically identical, put them in a, in a different petri dish with a different set of conditions, mm-hmm. and they would form bones. Yeah. And then I even take a, a third uh, set of the same cells, put them yet in another petri dish, and when I change the conditions, I could create fat cells. So in one culture, I get muscle, one I get bone, one I get fat. And the question, which is just the big question, is, well, what controlled them? Uh, to become each of these things? And the answer is this. It was the conditions and the environment because when I started the culture, they were all genetically identical. So the cells weren't any different when I started, but when I put them in different environments, they became different. So the conclusion hit me right in the face and said, wait, these aren't, the, the fate is not controlled by genes. The fate is controlled by the environment that's fascinating. that I put yeah. them in. Mm. And, and that's why when we, when you mentioned a little earlier in the abbreviated form is that uh, the, what I talk about is that when we look at ourselves as human beings, there's a tendency to see a single living entity. Like I look in the mirror, there's Bruce, one person. Looking back, Jacobus, you see yourself, one person. And, and yet, what I tell people, this is a misperception because... If you uh, would, uh, you know, take a look at your body through like a microscope, let's say, for example, you would see that you're not a one person, but you're a community of cells, maybe up to 50 trillion cells, all in a, in a, in a giant community. So when we look at ourselves, we, although we don't see all the individual cells, we have to recognize we're, we're actually a, a, a large population of cells collectively forming a single thing called an organism. Right. So... So it be, it, it, we're, it, what I refer to, to some people laugh is that uh, we are like skin-covered petri dishes with trillions of cells inside. Right. And and why is that relevant? Because just as I did with my experiments, when I put the cells into this environment or that environment, and the environment determined what happened, 
as people, we, we're like petri dishes, and when we live in this particular environment, our cells do one thing, and if we move to a different environment, our cells may do another thing. So basically, uh, the fate of our cells and the health of our cells is not so much determined by the genes, but really determined by the environment that we find ourselves in. So we talk about healthy environments or, or environments that induce pathology, and then we have to recognize uh, it wasn't the genes that really controlled this. It was how we responded to the environment that controlled ourselves. And then there's one obvious conclusion, yeah. and that is, well, then our fate in regard to our biology and our health is not so much predetermined by the genes, but is reflected in the environments that we live in. And why, the conclusion of that is very important because what we teach in school is that genes control life. Yeah. And if that was true, then I'd have to say, well, you're a victim of your heredity because you didn't pick the genes that you came with and you can't change them. So yeah. whatever set of genes that you have to say, I have to live with this. And, and it really scares a lot of people because when they have things running in their family like cardiovascular disease or cancer, then there's the belief that that they too will be susceptible to these diseases because they have these genes. And it turns out, no, it wasn't the genes, it was the environment. And the difference between the two, as I said, if you if it's up to the genes, then you're a victim because you, you, you have no control over it. That's right. But if, if it's the environment, then all of a sudden you become very powerful in what you do because you can regulate which environment that you respond to. So by changing your environment, you can change your life. And all of a sudden it says, oh, well, that's the difference between the old vision that we are, we are genetic automatons and victims to the new vision that we are creators of the life that we have. Yeah. And, and, and this is very interesting because in the last uh, year or two, um, the, uh, people that work with cancer and cardiovascular diseases have now publicly uh, uh, made the same announcement that, for example, uh, over 90% of cardiovascular problems like heart attack and stroke issues and, and, and issues like that, over 90% of these people, these patients, actually could avoid those diseases by changing their lifestyle. Yeah. So we were attributing for the longest time cardiovascular disease must be genetic running in families, and it turns out, no, it's actually behavior, or the responses to behavior that are learned in families, and, and it's nothing to do with the genetics. That means that we can uh, change our fate in regard to how our cardiovascular system uh, uh, response during life. And the same thing applies to cancer because, uh, let's say, for example, the American Cancer Society spent uh, about 50 years and billion dollars oh, trying to find cancer genes. Yes, yes. And in the end, and, and they just announced, like last year, this last summer, they announced, they said uh, 60% or more, I think that's the conservative estimate, but it's the first time they said it, 60% or more of cancer is totally avoidable by changing lifestyle and diet. And all of a sudden, we're beginning wow. to see, for years, we've looked at ourselves as victims of these diseases. And now, these, the, 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 you know, the organizations that study these, these diseases reveal we weren't victims. We were involved with creating the problem. But by knowing that, we could also be involved with repairing the problem. So all of a sudden, we become empowered. Yes. Well, that is, uh, that's really amazing. I, I was going to tell you, Bruce, I read recently that more than $95 billion 
is spend every year on medical research. Did you know that? $95 billion? I'm afraid to hear those numbers. <laughs> because yeah. somewhere along the line, I know that's in my taxes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, not just that. You probably use some of it but uh, in the past. But isn't it amazing? I, I, I gave a lecture on Thursday in Helena, uh, Montana, and I said, too, how much of that $95 billion per year, not just one time, per year, do we actually see back in results? Well, it's an unfortunate situation because if you look at the statistics of health, which is a very uh, interesting correlation here, the United States, as you just mentioned, spends the most money on medical research and medical support than any other country in the world. And we rank, uh, I think, number 24 yes. in the list of nations in regard to health. Now, 24 is pretty far down the line. And it's interesting, for example, because the healthiest nation is Japan, and they spend the least amount of money on health care. Huh. So it, it, all of a sudden, we have to stop, and because uh, we have a vision in America, you know, we've always had this, throw more money at it, and it will get done, it will be better. And in this particular case, it's a very clear example. The more money we throw into it, the worse our health has become. Mm-hmm. And it's an unfortunate situation. I know it's early in the morning for some people, but here, here, here comes the truth. We don't have a health industry. We have a disease industry. We have an industry that makes money and flourishes on the presence of disease. Yeah. And the significance is if they actually cured the diseases, then the whole thing would fall apart. And, and it's funny yes. because it's a parallel. People don't see it, but it's a parallel, let's say, to the, uh, the industrial medical complex, uh, you know, I mean, industrial uh, military complex. Yes. We have a, a giant military. And what's the point? Well, if we don't use them, then there's all kinds of problems. So the, the military in itself is encouraging situations where they get to be used so that we always are fighting these kinds of battles and wars, but that keeps the military, this giant organization, alive and afloat. Uh, and yet the same thing applies to medicine is that uh, rather than curing diseases, as you noticed as of late, they're not curing them, they're finding new ones. <laughs> and, yes, and they're actually making them up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and the reason is this, is that there was a point where they made or were making the drugs to all the known diseases, and yet they wanted a bigger market. And so how do you get a bigger market? Well, you create a, a new disease entity. You, you get a list of symptoms that some people have or groups of people express. You collectively put those together and you give it a name. And then once you give it a name, you can give it a drug. So there are all kinds of new, uh, interesting to me, yes. diseases arising that are not actually diseases. They're just responses to the way we live life. And again, every one of these so-called diseases is nothing organic but really a reflection of our own behavior and our lifestyle choices. Yeah. The, uh, I know we're coming closer to a uh, to our first, uh, the end of the first segment, uh, Bruce, but how is your research, and obviously this is groundbreaking, how is this being received right now in the, uh, in the rest of the professional world? Well, uh, first of all, let me, let me announce this, is that while I was a pioneer in all this research, uh, I, I am not the only one that was doing this. Uh, there were a number of us doing it. I was just more or less the one that came out and publicly said, this is where we are. Well, the rest of them were very busy doing their research, and yet why this is important is uh, the ideas and things that I came across years ago working with these stem cells have now been uh, uh, you know, repeated and, uh, and uh, verified by many others. Uh, I love this. because I think it's a joke when I think about it, is that my chapter two in my book is called 
it's the environment, stupid, yes. which is a play on Bill Clinton's sure. uh, Democratic platform, talking about how the environment influences stem cells. And it was funny because in the prestigious journal Nature, there was a recent, well, about a half a year ago now, there was an article about how stem cells are influenced by their environment and not by their their genes. And and the and the article in Nature is called "It's the Ecology Stupid." Yes. So I have to laugh because it's like exactly the same title for exactly the same thing, but it's the second one is verified by conventional science. All right. Well, as we uh, continue in our second segment, Bruce, uh, we're going to jump a little bit more on some of the things we discussed in the first show. But thank you so much for this great introduction and explanation. This is uh, this is very good. I appreciate that. Uh, we're going to be right back. And welcome back, everybody. Well, uh, today Bruce Lipton is back uh, talking about his book, The Biology of Belief. So Bruce Lipton's website is brucelipton.com. Brucelipton.com. Just check it out. Check the website out. Go through it. See some of the links that he has. Read some of his interviews that are up there. Bruce, um, as we were just finishing up the first half hour, I asked you, how is your work being appreciated and respected by your colleagues? And you said, well, you're not the only one doing all this research. And obviously, there is a lot going on with the whole psychology, psychiatry, uh, self-help, all that stuff in in the world today, and especially in the United States, is very, very popular. Uh, I would like to talk to you about how your work is being respected after all the years of research and the book that is written, etc. But what I think we need to do first is go to our caller who has a question for you. Caller, good morning. Welcome to the program. Your name, how can we help you? This is Dr. Tan Lip. This is the mirror image of Dr. Lipton. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Morning, Daniel. Just thinking that medicine is a uh, belief-based system, so we're living in a lot of belief-based systems like religion. That's an interesting angle on what you're saying on the overview. Well, thank you, Daniel. Okay, Thanks, Daniel. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because uh, you're absolutely right. It is a belief-based system, and uh, it, it's interesting because when I was teaching in the in the basic sciences, one of the fundamental beliefs that you're familiar with, almost everybody is familiar with, is that DNA uh, is believed to be the source of our control. Uh, and and they talk about a flow of information that the that the information from the DNA, the genes. Is then passed into a process, uh, a product called RNA, and then the RNA molecules are used to make the protein. So we go DNA, RNA, protein as the flow of information. This flow, which is the heart, the, the just the heart of biomedicine, this this information about the flow, uh, in the textbooks, coincidentally, uh, is referred to as the central dogma that the the principal belief that genes control life. Uh, is given the, the title The Central Dogma. And what was interesting about it was that while I was teaching that for years, and I would, you know, just start in school and teaching the medical students, okay, but today we're going to talk about the central dogma, and we talk about the DNA and all that stuff. When I left the system and started to really have doubts about all the things that I was teaching and how it was going, it, it occurred to me that I really didn't know the definition of the, what does that mean, dogma? So when I went to the dictionary to look up the word dogma, I was totally surprised and taken back because here's the definition of the word dogma. A dogma is a belief based on religious persuasion and not scientific fact. 
And all of a sudden, when I realized that, I thought, oh, my God, I'm teaching religion in, in yeah. medicine because yeah. the belief of DNA was actually a religious belief. And, and it's really exciting because that whole belief fell apart uh, when the, the results of the Human Genome Project were revealed because it said that our understanding was so completely wrong, we didn't even know what happened uh, when the results came out because... Uh, to, to have a biological machine like a human being controlled by genes like programs, uh, it required that there had to be over 100,000, maybe 150,000 genes hmm. to, to make a human being on that particular model. But when the human genome results uh, were revealed, it said that we actually had less than 25,000 genes. So all of a sudden, I said, wait a minute, here's the belief system that requires we have over 100,000 genes. We find that there are less than 25,000 genes. To, to understand what happened here, the first thing we have to recognize was this. Our belief about a genetically controlled uh, biology is now found to be totally false. Yeah. And that basically, A, there are not enough genes to even do that, and B, we, we have given genes a, a life of their own. I mean, think about it this way. Uh, everyone out there, I'm sure, has seen or heard or, or you know, almost on a daily basis, uh, some somebody pointing out to them, well, a gene turns on and a gene turns off, or a gene did this and a gene did that, or you read in the paper, genes cause this and genes cause that. Uh, every one of those kinds of things requires an action, a turning on and an off, or a causing. That means, like, genes must be able to do something. So we gave we gave life to the genes, like they they're, they're in a science sense they're self actualizing, meaning that they make decisions. Like you're walking down the street, and all of a sudden the gene decided to turn on and give you cancer, and it's like we talk like that. Yeah. But yeah. the reality is here here's a, a, a come up and here's what the reality is: a gene is a blueprint. It's exactly what it is. It's a, it's like a ticker tape. It's a linear string with information, just like a ticker tape with information t- typed on it. Yeah. Uh, and this, dr- this string uh, is the equivalent of a blueprint, as I said. Yes. Now, why is that relevant? And the answer is, well, go to an architect's office, stand behind the architect, or they're working on a blueprint, and then just casually suggest or ask the architect, excuse me, um, is that blueprint on or off? And, of course, the architect will look at you like, what are you talking about? It's a blueprint. It's not on. It's not off. It's just a blueprint. Well, all of a sudden, you say, wait a minute. If genes are blueprints, then can there be an on and off? And the answer is no, there can't. And this is the big wake-up call because there is no on and off to a blueprint. It's just the blueprint. Right. It is what it is. And so the question that comes in then is, well, what do we mean when we say a gene is on or off? It's like, it's not that the gene turned on and off. It's whether we're reading the blueprint or we're not reading the blueprint. That's very different because reading the blueprint is somebody else's job. It's not the blueprint's job. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, when we have given power to DNA and to genes and say that they control things, they control our lives and, and all this stuff, it's like, this is uh, based on that, that religious uh, uh, central dogma, the one that says genes control life, and it turns out that's, a, that's not scientific at all. Yeah. And so now all of a sudden the emphasis is not on the particular gene, but on the mechanism that by which we read the genes. And all of a sudden that changes everything because 
the the mechanism for reading the genes is is involved with uh, how the cell or the organism reads the environment. The mm-hmm. same mechanism that reads the environment is also used to engage or read the genes. And so the the point very simply is this: we gave genes power that they really don't possess. Mm-hmm. And 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 what it really turns out is the power is in the the brain of the organism, be it the cell or the human, in that it's the brain that reads the environment of the world and then goes and selects the genes to be read that are needed to keep the organism alive in that environment. So all of a sudden it says, well, you weren't controlled by your genes, you were controlled by your perception. Mm. And, and this is exactly what the experiments of the cells and culture back in the 70s revealed to me. It's whatever the environment is that I put the cells in, whatever environment the cells were seeing, that environment con- you know, was influencing or controlling the read of the gene. And that's why if I take the cells from this environment, A environment, and move it into B environment, I would also then change the reading of the genes. And it's interesting because uh, just recently there was a, a very wonderful article about uh, identical twins, identical human twins. Yeah. And, and we know that they came from the same egg that uh, in the first division after the egg was fertilized, the, when the cell divided into two cells, yeah. uh, some reason, for some reason the two cells separated from each other and then each cell gives rise to a different baby and why is this relevant is because then both babies came exactly from the same mother cell, which meant then they were genetically identical. So when identical twins are born and you look at their gene readout, they're pretty much reading the same genes in their genome uh, in each of the different siblings. But here's the exciting news. Every day of their life after that, as they experience life, they read different genes so that if you look at the genome uh, of twins when they get a little older, you find out that they're reading very different genes in each one. They're not the same at all. And the reason why is because each one of them experienced life the way they thought and as a result changed the readout of their genes so that it said even though you start out with exactly the same genes being read, as you experience your life, you, you end up with be, uh, different genes being activated. So then all of a sudden, it wasn't the genes they came with. It was the life experience they had yeah. that determined which genes were being read. Bruce, yesterday I happened to watch, uh, since you brought up twins, identical twins, um, I happened to watch a program about intuitive children. And uh, they were talking about a set of twins that are who are identical. And they say often... They know that identical twins are telepathic. They read each other's mind. But not every identical twin is intuitive, uh, whereby they can actually create intuitive healing or they can uh, predict things. Uh, they're, they're, they're psychic, almost. How do you, from your point of view, from your research, explain a psychic phenomenon, uh, predicting the, true, uh, the, the, the future, like uh, they say Nostradamus did, or uh, like these girls actually predicted the 9-11 attacks uh, back in 1999, uh, pretty much into detail, and they were talking about that. And uh, how do you, have you done any thinking about that? Well, I've done some thinking about it. Of course, that's a hard thing to work on in a laboratory, but, yeah. uh, but it's very interesting because then it would say, is there a part of us that is above or beyond our physical body, so a part of us that can 
to see in other places and other realms is, or, 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 or are we just a, a, a consciousness focused in the physical body? And the answer to that question is, well, apparently we're not focused in the physical body. And it's interesting because um, uh, even the CIA was doing a lot of work on what is called remote viewing. Yes, we've done a show on that. Oh, you did. So uh-huh. basically what it said was that an individual sitting in their, in their living room in Bozeman could, could uh, uh, get into a state where they can uh, actually see something on the other side of the world. And, and, and describe it, uh, which is an experiment of remote viewing. And, and then there's, there's only one reality that you can say about that particular, re- you know, that, the, that, that behavior or that response. Be, and it's been repeated over and over and over again to the extent that I said even the military invests into this remote viewing. Yeah. How can I tell you what's going on on the other side of the world at some remote location while I'm sitting in my living room here in the state? If I was only restricted to my own physical body, that would not even be possible at all. So basically, it says that some part of me is not in this body. Some part of me is, is, is able to be an observer somewhere else. So it suggests then that part of my identity is in my body or appears to be in my body, and part of it is separate from my body but associated with it. And then we say, well, how can all that be? And then we fall back on the concept that maybe we exist in the form of, a, let's say, a spiritual energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, I, and so that people don't get afraid with the word spirit here in this particular case. Let, let's give a definition for energy, first of all. Energy mm-hmm. are invisible moving forces. That the forces that, that, that cause things to happen, like a magnetic field, you yeah. can't see it, but it can do things, or an electric field. Uh, energy is like a field, it's invisible, and it influences matter. And then all of a sudden we say, well, what's spirit? And, and when I talk about spirit, I can use the exact same definition. It's an invisible, moving force that, that really is the force behind our lives. Yeah. So all of a sudden you say, well, wait, I can either be talking about quantum physics, or I could be talking about spirit, and we're talking about the same thing. I see. So basically then... What I'm suggesting is that there's an energy, a force, or a field of personal identity to us that uh, we are like uh, television sets with antennas, and each one of us is tuned to our own unique station. So uh, I'm happening to be right now, my channel is set on the Bruce station, yours is set on the Jacobus station. You receive a different broadcast than I receive, but here's the beautiful part. Where did your broadcast come from? Where did my broadcast come from? Where did the broadcast of any individual listening on the radio right now, where where is their broadcast? It's not in the body. It's in what we call the field, the environment around us. Mm-hmm. And and then why that's important is that, well, if I'm not localized in my body and I'm in the field, then it is also possible for me to interpret uh, something that's going on in the world other than around my body particularly. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we have two, two sources of identity, the one under our skin and the one that's in the field, uh, the broadcast that we receive uh, via the antennas on our television set. Wow, interesting. I uh, I want to ask you another question about it, but we have a caller on hold. Caller, thanks for joining us. Your name, how can we help you, please? Kathy. Hi, Kathy. Doing. You don't have to be psychic to learn how to do it if you practice the practice. 
Well, the, the, uh, same, the same thing happens when uh, when people receive uh, hearts from from uh, donors that have died. When they receive the hearts, they also begin to receive characters and qualities of the life of the person who donated the heart. Now, obviously, these people are dead, yet they're still broadcasting right. uh, their image through these organs into the new person. So that's almost an experiment that could suggest that, yeah, the identity is still out there even if the body is gone. Right, but remote viewing is a scientific process. Absolutely. Uh, that's why the government invested like, it. <laughs> and it's something anyone can learn if right. they open up their mind to learn it. Well, that's the issue. We have tremendous powers, except that during our development, we are programmed not to express these powers so that, uh, you know, when people say, oh, I see these visions, and then the parents say, no, no, don't tell yeah. people. Uh, and when you get older is when you stop doing what you could do as a kid. Absolutely, because we were programmed not to express the powers that we have when we were kids, so when we get older, we forgot how to do it, and yet we well, all all people are able to do it, as you mentioned. Well, we, well, got, uh, we, well, we didn't run. know any better. <laughs> we got to run. Thanks, Kathy. <laughs> Stay tuned because there is so much more to come in the next couple hours. Uh, we'll be right back. Gesundheit with Jacobus. It's all about living healthy. And welcome back, everybody. It's uh, We have Dr. Bruce Lipton with us talking about his phenomenal book, The Biology of Belief. I highly recommend you get this. I think it will change the way you look at life it is, will change the way you think about yourself. It will change the way you will <laughs> you will live your life. And uh, that will actually start today. And let's take a look at what is going on around the world. And I don't want to make this into a political show. And my listeners know that. But when you look at the different cultures and what we're exposed to today with the different religious cultures and how they're clashing, um, you see that. The people who are programmed, we are programmed a certain way. We do a lot of self-justification in the Western world about what we feel about religion and how we feel about uh, our, the, the the way that we can move to a higher consciousness. But so there are Islam and the people who are uh, do Hinduism, Buddhism. Uh, they feel that their way is the only way. Uh, it is impossible for us to go into a country and try to change that. Yeah, it certainly would be very difficult to do that when we understand how did we get the beliefs that we hold. Yes. <clears throat> and basically, what we now recognize is this, that the first six years of our lives, so, uh, and that's actually, it starts in, in utero, so actually what we're still in a fetal stage of development from then to the first six years of our lives, our brains operate in a different way than they operate after we're six years old. So the first six years, our brains are, if I put wires on a, on a person and read their brain activity, we call the EEG, electroencephalograph. Mm -hmm. uh, if you read the activity of an adult, you will see that we, we have all ranges of uh, EEG activity from very low frequencies to very high frequencies, up and down, all over the place. Yeah. But if you look at a child as it's developing, it doesn't have that whole range of activity. It starts at a very low frequency for the first two years, a frequency that we call theta. 
which if we're as adults, if we were if if we were in a in theta right now, we'd be sleeping or unconscious. But for an infant, it's it's uh, uh, this is the first two years of their lives. They're not sleeping, but what it really means is that they're not able to respond to the world because for the first two years, they're still developing the muscle coordination and the 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 muscle side or the output side of the brain. Uh, however, for the first two years, the input side of the brain, meaning the information that's coming from the outside and being stored in the brain, that's working very, very well. So that uh, while a child is downloading, in a sense, what you're saying when you're when you're around this baby like an infant, and you look at it and you think, well, this is a little helpless baby doesn't doesn't know anything, and look, it can't even control itself. Uh, and we talk about this baby, we don't realize that for the first two years, that, that baby is actually downloading just like a tape recorder. Yeah. Although its biology isn't developed that it can make a response. As a matter of fact, uh, if, you know, if you're familiar with, you know, when you're raising a child, you can tell that there's a part where a child cries, not because it's hurt, but because it's frustrated. Oh, <laughs> and yeah. it's frustrated because it knows what it wants, and it also knows it can't say it. Mm. And so there's this point where they get very frustrated because they know exactly what they want, but they they can't get the body to coordinate. So the first two years, the brain activity is low, and it's in this uh, what is called delta. Yeah. And then from two until six, the, it ramps up to a little higher frequency called theta. So the predominant uh, brain state of a child between two and six is what is called theta. And theta is also a state of imagination so that as an adult, if we get into a lot of theta activity, that's where we're like dreaming or daydreaming or imagining things. Well, I mean, of course, look, think about a child between two and six is they live in the imaginary world. They, yeah. you know, they have imaginary friends. They, they, they play games based on imagination where like a broom becomes a horse or a, a plate of mud is a pie. To them, they actually, you know, that's their imagination. They can, they can make it real. Well, why is this relevant? Is that for the first six years, then, the, the predominant brain state of a child in the first six years is delta and theta. After six, there's a, a ramping up again. So there's higher frequency after six. Uh, and, and between six and 12, the child is expressing a higher frequency called alpha, mm -hmm. which is called consciousness, very calm consciousness. And by 12, it even ramps up to a higher frequency called beta, and beta is like schoolroom studying and thinking and hardworking mental activity. So I step back and I say, for the first six years of a child's life, it is predominantly in delta and theta, low frequencies. Well, it's interesting because uh, if you understand the concept of hypnosis, if I wanted to hypnotize you, I have to drop your frequencies down like toward the theta or, you know, not delta or theta, actually. If I can get you to your brain activity in delta and theta, I can hypnotize you, meaning that I could put information into your head and it will go straight into your subconscious, like a, straight into the tape recorder. Yeah. And, and when you become conscious, when you start to become a higher frequency, like after six, where you start to get alpha, uh, then your thinking kicks in and then it interferes with the download. So basically it says this, an a, a infant and a child up to six years of life is not in the kind of thinking consciousness that we're in. It's in a lower level of activity, but more like hypnosis, so that everything the child experiences or hears or, or learns in some sense by experiencing the world is at that point just downloaded into a tape recorder. 
It has nothing to do with their, like, uh, logical thinking or anything like that. It's just a recording. So if I take a child under six and I begin to program it, uh, between, uh, be up till six years of age, I can program, uh, the fate of that child because that's the thing that goes into the subconscious. And in fact, the Jesuits, they were, they would be very proud of the fact that they knew this. They would say, you give me a child until it's six or seven and it will belong to the church for the rest of its life. Yeah. What they knew is if I can get the fundamental programs in by six, those programs are going to operate throughout the life of the child and the child will conform to those programs. Yeah. We now know a reason why. And here's what the reason is. We have in our mind, we actually can subdivide our mind into two two functional subdivisions, one called the conscious mind, which is like the thinking mind, the one that's connected to the spirit yeah. or, or the source. Our, our personal identity mind is the conscious mind. Mm-hmm. The other mind, the other part of it is called the subconscious mind. The subconscious mind is is, is like a tape player uh, that it puts programs in there, and once the programs are learned, you don't have to relearn them. You don't even have to think about them. You just push the button and the program will play without you even putting a conscious thought into it. So, for example, when we were infants, we didn't know how to walk, but it was a learning process. We had to learn how to stand up. We had to learn how to stay in balance as we moved. I mean, if you could ever get yourself back into that, that was a very frustrating case for a child because it tried to stand up and walk, and it had to learn how to do it. But now think about it today. You don't think about walking. It's just automatic. You don't even have to say, I'm going to walk. You just have to have an intention to go somewhere, and the walking is automatic. Right. The automatic part is because the process of walking is in the subconscious program. The intention to walk says, okay, push the button, and now it'll automatically run the program. Yeah. Uh, the, the subconscious, uh, uh, this recording device, uh, it's very important be, to discuss this because Somewhere along our history, uh, we have gotten an idea that the subconscious mind is a, a place where all evil lurks. You know, that's like a Freudian yes. thing yes. that's buried in that subconscious mind are all evil things. And, and and the reality is, no, that's that's not true. The subconscious mind is a tape recorder. It, it, whether it has evil or good is not based on the tape recorder. It's based on who put the program into it. So there's not anything evil with the subconscious mind. In fact, it's very important because I said we have the two minds, subconscious and the conscious, the conscious one being our alert mind. Uh, they're not equal in regard to the power of the brain processing machinery behind it. Hmm. That the subconscious mind is a million times more powerful a computer, let's say, than is the conscious mind. So basically, the, the subconscious mind is, a, is something that can help you or facilitate you by handling a lot of data without you focusing your attention on it. So, like I said, walking, it seems simple, but if you had to walk with your conscious mind, use your thinking to walk, uh, it would take hours to walk because it takes so much activity to control the muscles and all the nerves involved. But once it's in the subconscious, it's mindless. You just push the button, you walk. I'll give another example just yeah. so it's more freak, uh, more recent for most people. Think about it this way. Um, uh, when you first got your driver's permit, you didn't really know how to drive the car. You just got a license. You sit in the car, and then all of a sudden, behind the seat, you realize you have to be very conscious. You you have to look at the mirrors, and you have to look out the window, and look at the dashboard with all the gauges, and pay attention to your feet on the pedals, and all kinds of things. You had to pay attention to a lot of things. A lot of people, 
when they get their driver's permit and get behind that wheel uh, are almost paralyzed because it's their conscious mind has to juggle so much information to drive the car. Yes. But then, let's say now you've been driving the car for a long time. Guess what? You don't think about driving the car when you get into it anymore. You get in, you put the key in the ignition, you start thinking about what you want to do. Let's say I'm thinking about what I'm going to buy at the store. You put the key in the ignition, and while you're thinking about what you're buying at the store, you're driving to the store, thinking about it. You're not paying attention to the driving. And that, you know, the funny part about it, because when I talk to audiences, I know they all laugh when I bring it up. And it goes like this. Let's say you have someone in the car. And you get so involved with a discussion with them yeah. that uh, as you're driving, you didn't really pay attention to the road. And then at some point you look out the window and, and it dawns on you. It's like, God, I, I haven't looked at the road for the last 10 minutes. I, I was so involved in the discussion. That's right. And, and the reality is, well, then, and this is, this is a very important instruction, Jacob, as it goes like this. Uh, first question is this. Well, I have two minds, conscious and subconscious, and if my conscious was engaged in the discussion with the passengers, then who drove the car? And the answer <laughs> yeah. is, of course, the subconscious mind. But as I said, it's a million times more powerful. In fact, if you're about to get into an emergency while driving your car, your brain's so intelligent, it will shut off your conscious mind yes. and actually drive the car with the subconscious mind because it's faster than than the, the conscious mind, which is slower. Yes. And, and so basically, the, the subconscious mind can do it. But here was the most important piece of that little example, and people stop and think about it, it goes like this. Okay, so you were involved in a discussion for 10 minutes. You were driving the car with your subconscious mind. And then I ask you, well, describe your driving behavior while you were having that discussion. And then you will say, well, I can't. I, I wasn't paying attention. I was in the discussion. Yeah. And then I say, aha, <laughs> and here's the catch. Uh, and, and this is very critical, and people have to listen to this, that we can operate our lives with both the conscious and the subconscious mind. But when the subconscious mind is running the show, like driving the car, it was doing so because the conscious mind was busy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And because the conscious mind is busy, it doesn't observe the behavior that the subconscious mind is using at the time. And therefore, and this is the critical part, much of our behavior is driven by the subconscious mind. In fact, here's the fact. 95% of the behavior we use every day is from the subconscious mind, not from the conscious mind. And then all of a sudden, but why is that important? The answer is this. Because the nature of how the two minds work, the subconscious mind will do everything that needs to be done that the conscious mind's not paying attention to. But because of that, when the subconscious mind is doing its thing, the conscious mind's not observing it because it was busy. Yeah. So now the question is this. 95% of the day, you're, you're, you're carrying out behavior. How much of it do you observe? And the answer is not a lot because most of it is from the subconscious. Now, it why it, is, it, it is already playing, so to yeah, say. So, so, so let's give one example, though, and that will then we can go on from what this means. And here's the example. It goes like this. Um, you know somebody, and you know their parent, and you see that this person and their parent's behaviors are almost exactly the same. So you volunteer this. You say to this person, you know, Mary, you're just like your mom. And all of a sudden, almost inevitably, when you say something like that, uh, Mary or the person you're saying to will, will react in, in, in shock. 
how can you say I'm like my mom? I'm I'm so different than my mom. And, and, and the funny part is, yes, you're different in your conscious mind, mm-hmm. but your subconscious mind was programmed by your mom, so the behavior in it is just like your mom. And so 95% of the day, you are playing the same behavior that your mother taught you, but here's the fact. You didn't see that yeah. because when you were doing the automatic behaviors, because you were busy with your conscious mind thinking or dreaming or solving a problem or something. And so all of a sudden it says, and this is the catch, most of our behavior comes from the subconscious mind. We don't see it when it plays. And here's the catch. Most of the behavior in the subconscious mind was learned when we were infants through a process of like hypnosis by observing our mother and our father and our peers and our teachers observing them, just like hypnosis, downloading their behavior into our subconscious mind. And then as we get older, when we're not paying attention, we play behaviors, but it's actually behaviors we got from somebody else, not not what we would like, but what they showed us so that this is the conflict that we as humans have, and that is this. We think we are running our lives with our beliefs and our spirit and our intentions, our personal selves, and yet 95% of our lives come from the tape player, which was programmed by other people. When we were and, really young. Uh, when we were very, very young, and we don't see it, so then we're unaware when we're doing behaviors that are not supporting us, we don't see it because they're automatic. Yeah. And, and and then the last conclusion of this, and that's where now it hits the me- uh, the metal hits the road or whatever they say here. The rubber hits like, the road. <laughs> it goes like this. 95% of our, our day-to-day activities are coming from the subconscious mind, which are programs that we got from other people. We don't see them. And when our life isn't working right, we stop and think, yeah, but... My intention was to be successful. My intention was to have a loving relationship. My my intention was to be healthy. Then how come I'm not? And then what we think is, well, because that was our intention and we don't have it, the universe is not letting us get there. And then we blame the world. The world is against me. And it turns out, my goodness, that was a mistake. It wasn't the world was against us. We were just engaging in those subconscious behaviors that we got from other people and their behaviors don't support what we want. And it wasn't that the world didn't give us anything. We sabotaged ourselves without seeing it. Yes. And then we feel like victims. And I, uh, I know a few people like that. So uh, I guess more of us do. Caller, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Uh, You're on the air with Bruce Lipton. What's your name, please? Um, this is Vernon. Hi, Vernon. Good morning. Good morning. Um, okay, given the things you just said, how do we, and I, I want to say, can we uh, change our inner person uh, with word, logos? Can we change it by any method? How do, how do we get to the point where we know, you know, if you look at my life, you, you, I'll, I'll know that there are certain patterns that I wish to change, but I've had extreme difficulty doing so. How do we reach in and, and, and readjust some of those settings uh, for better health or better performance, whatever. Vernon, great question. Absolutely great for this regard because this is the, the failure that we've been dealing with for a number of years in regard to conventional psychology. 
And the first thing is this. The first question that we have to answer is, can you change the programs? The answer is absolutely yes, you can do this. But why do we have difficulties doing that? Why, why do we have difficulties when we recognize, okay, I say, oh, my God, I have this behavior. I don't like this behavior. It's interfering with my life. I know I don't want it. And yet, no matter how much I talk to myself, which we have a tendency to do, uh, and frequently then berate ourselves, because after talking to ourselves, well, look, uh, I say to myself, look, come on, Bruce, you could do better than this, and I'm talking to myself. Uh, and then I find out that uh, uh, then I'm still carrying out the same old behavior after giving myself a good lecture. <laughs> and I have to find out, why didn't I change this behavior? And here's the catch. The subconscious mind and the conscious mind, I said, were very different processes. The subconscious mind is the equivalent of a tape recorder. So that when I'm very young and in this uh, hypnagogic state, my mind is downloading these programs that I'm watching other people and I'm downloading their programs in the tape recorder. Now the idea is now I get older and I have a conscious mind that's beginning to work and I'm observing and I'm saying, I don't like the behavior. So I talk to myself and then I realize at some point nothing changes. Then I yell at myself and now I get mad at myself because I keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And then at some point we bring God in and say, God, I tried to fix this. Somebody fix my tape player. Bruce, I hate to stop here, but we, we got to hit a break here. And Vernon, thanks for the call. We want to continue with that because that is, that is a very important part of the discussion today. So thank thanks you for the call. Uh, thank you. Folks, Gesundheit with Jacobus will be right back. Gesundheit with Jacobus. It's all about living healthy. All right, welcome back to the program. Uh, Bruce, as we uh, were talking uh, with Vernon, uh, Vernon brought up a very important part, which is uh, something that we ended up talking about in the last 15 minutes of the previous show. Uh, What can we do to actually change our environment or the patterns that we're in, the tapes that are playing, the tapes that are running, and that make us do things that for so many, I would say the largest portion of people alive today makes them feel inadequate and makes them feel unsuccessful, makes them feel ugly, makes them feel um, uh, unhappy. Uh, what are some of the things that we can do to change? Well, this is, this is the uh, question that Vernon brought up, and, it's, and we were just getting into the fact that we talked about there are two minds, the conscious and the subconscious mind, mm-hmm. and that the subconscious mind I related to the equivalent of a tape player. And why that becomes relevant, as I said, we we have a tendency to use our conscious mind to try to talk to our our subconscious mind and encourage it to do something different. And it very, very infrequently works, and therefore we get very frustrated with it. And the question is, why is it so difficult to make the change? The answer is this. As I mentioned, the subconscious mind is a tape player. Mm -hmm. So uh, just let's use this analogy because then it will make sense. If I give you a cassette... And you have a tape player at home, and you put that tape play, the tape and the cassette, uh, you put it into your player, and you push the play button, and the program is playing now. And then you listen to the program, and you say, I, I, I don't like that program. I want a different program. So you go over to the, to the player, and you stand there, and you talk to it. And you say, now, player, I, I don't like that program. Now, please play something different. Hmm. And, and you're talking to this tape player, and you're realizing you keep talking, but it keeps playing the same show. It keeps playing the same thing over and over and over again, 
And no matter how much you talk at it, no matter how much you yell at it, no matter how much you try to get other people to yell at it, it's still going to play the same tape. So the issue about it is this. We have made a, a conceptual error. We thought that there's like somebody in the subconscious mind so that when the conscious mind is talking to the subconscious mind that there's some entity in there that's listening and and with our hope that after listening they will change the tape. And the fact is, no, the subconscious mind is strictly a mechanical device just like a tape player. You can talk to it, you can yell at it, you can do everything you want, but it will not change the tape unless you know how to push the record button. And when you know how to do that, that's a process. Then you have an opportunity to rewrite the tapes. But by just talking to it or yelling at it or arguing with yourself, that doesn't push the button. So that's Mm -hmm. our biggest failure. How many years we kept thinking, you know, like positive thinking. I'm going to sit here and have all these wonderful positive thoughts. And it's interesting because remember I said there's two minds, conscious and subconscious. And that the subconscious will handle all the details if the conscious is busy. So I, I think the humor in it is this, is that uh, let's say you uh, you have some character in your life you really want to change, so you're in your conscious mind thinking positive thoughts. Oh, I'm going to be healthy. I'm going to be healthy. I want to be healthy. And you're talking like that. And it's interesting because while you're focusing on those positive thoughts, of course you're not paying attention to what's going on. So it's interesting, even while you're having positive thoughts, your subconscious mind then takes over because you're having these thoughts and you're not paying attention to the world, and it's playing the same programs that you're trying to change. It's playing those where you're thinking positive thoughts of fixing it. Yeah. And the issue is that uh, that's why positive thought, uh, it works for some people and it doesn't work for a lot of people. And the reason why it works for some people is because when they have the positive thoughts, the the correlating programs in the subconscious tape player uh, apparently must be very similar to the positive thought so that when a conscious positive thought comes in, it encourages the tape player to support it. But most of us trying to have a positive thought are trying to change a program that we don't like, and that's where the failure comes from because if the conscious mind and subconscious mind have different programs, the positive thoughts will not change the subconscious mind at that level. Hmm. So the biggest question comes finally down to this, Vernon, we're getting there. We're getting because, there. <clears throat> yes, you can change the subconscious mind, push the button. And that's a record button, meaning I now want to change I want to change the programming. Well, how can you change it? Um, last time in May we talked about it, there were actually uh, three very fundamental ways among many others, but these are three fundamental ways. Uh, one of them is clinical hypnotherapy. And the reason why that's relevant is Go back to, to that stage where I said where the subconscious mind was being programmed. I said between fetal development and six, and I said that you're in a hypnotic trance. So it's interesting. If you want to change the program, is hey, get back into that same hypnotic trance, the yeah. uh, hypnosis, mm-hmm. and rewrite the program because hypnosis bypasses consciousness because when you're doing hypnosis, your mind is not even operating in consciousness. It's operating at those lower frequencies, delta and theta, so the new program, uh, when you get in a hypnotic trance, it's like pushing the record button, then the, through the hypnosis you can rewrite the program. That's one way. Um, another way is actually an interesting way. It's based on uh, not letting your, your conscious mind wander. <laughs> because, as I said, when your conscious mind wanders and starts thinking about things, that's when the subconscious mind starts to take over the program. Mm-hmm. So 
if you can stay present and be here all the time consciously by being here without letting your mind wander a lot, then you actually are lifetime controlling the biology and not letting the automatic tapes play because, as I said, the subconscious mind will cover those things that the conscious mind's not paying attention to. So the more attention you pay to your life and what's going on, the less you let the subconscious mind run the show. And uh, through this process of continuously doing uh, control by conscious mind, repetition over a long period of time of putting in a new program will allow a rewriting as well. So those are two ways. Mm -hmm. And the third way is not just a, a single way. The third way is a group of modalities uh, that are collectively under the title called energy psychology, which is different than, for example, like cognitive psychology. Mm -hmm. Uh, Energy psychology is a new approach that essentially uh, puts the the brain into a state of like super learning. Uh, And super learning is a brain function uh, which involves at some level integrating the right and the left brain hemisphere so they work together at the same time. So you're getting harmony between the right and left brains. Uh, just for people to know that uh, that the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere of the brain uh, actually focus on different characters of our lives. So uh, let's say that the uh, uh, the left hemisphere is logic, uh, deals with logical things. It's logical to do this or that. But the right hemisphere deals with emotions. And so that if you're operating from your right hemisphere, you're more emotionally inclined to respond to your emotions. When you're operating from your left hemisphere, you're more inclined to be uh, doing things based on logic. And obviously, those are two different ways of, uh, of carrying out life. And here's the point. Apparently, for the first six years of our lives or so, when we were in that programmable state, we were operating with balanced activity with right and left hemispheres. And, and the child's ability to learn is, is really a, a equivalent to a state of super learning. For example, a three-year-old child can learn three languages at the same time. If there are three languages spoken in the house, yeah. that three-year-old child can learn each of those languages, recognize them as being different, have different rules of grammar and different vocabulary. Three-year-old can sort that out and, and learn three languages as individual things. Yeah. But you try then to, you get an eight or nine-year-old, and you say, I want to teach you a new language. And all of a sudden you realize it's very difficult just to pick up one language when a few years back that same child could have picked up three languages. Yes. So something changed as the child went past six where the learning ability was slowed down. And it turns out that apparently is when we started to go instead of brain balance. We started to switch uh, between sometimes the left hemisphere is in charge and then later during the day the right hemisphere is in charge and it goes back and forth during the day. But rarely are both of them working at exactly the same time. And therefore there's like a, a, a limitation on our learning ability as compared to when they are working at the same time. So energy psychology generally are a variety of modalities that seem to increase the super learning character of the brain so that it only takes minutes once you get into this brain balanced state to rewrite old existing programs. And so that what, what I like about the energy modalities, the energy psychology modalities, is that most of them are virtually instantaneously effective, meaning you don't, you don't have to take 
days and weeks to change your subconscious mind. That subconscious beliefs can be changed within minutes and permanently. So uh, I, I really get excited by this because it is such an advance over our uh, traditional approach of, let's say, cognitive therapy, right. where my conscious mind is reviewing uh, everything that ever happened to me. And uh, with the concept that it was believed that if you understood all the reasons why your why your life turned out this way, like what your mom did, what your dad did, what these people did, if you become aware of all these things and think about them, then our belief was then your subconscious mind would change. And it turns out, actually, it's not very effective. It doesn't work that well, uh, that we can become very aware of all the incidents that caused us to detour from a healthy, normal life. And yet, even when we know all of them, we still express the same life anyway. And the reason is because it was the conscious mind that now understood what went wrong. But the subconscious mind's a tape player. It still has the same tape in it. So you could go to cognitive therapy for years, know all the reasons why your life turned out this way, and still play the same tapes because you were educating your conscious mind but not changing your subconscious mind. Right. So the um, when you talk about different therapies out there, one of the ones that you mentioned is Psy-K. Can you tell a little bit more about that? Well, this is the one that I, I was first introduced to because um, uh, I didn't know any of these modalities. And I was out on the road uh, starting in 1985 uh, lecturing about about these um, uh, new understanding about how the, how the cells worked and how the body worked and all that. And I would get to the end of the lecture and I would tell people, well, uh, now you see how it works, that uh, we have these programs and that these programs are operating the show. And so we're really, you know, manifesting or experiencing our subconscious programs and not frequently realizing what our conscious wants. And then people inevitably, as soon as I say, well, that's it, thank you very much, the hands would come up. And the first question always was, how do you change this? And, and I I, always, I felt very badly because I was saying, well, I'm a biologist. I, I don't know. How to, I, this is, this is, I know how it got in there, yes. but I, I didn't have any effective understanding uh, how to change it. And one day I was giving a seminar in Colorado, and I'd gone exactly through this, got to the last uh, part, thanked everybody. The first question, how do I change it? I stood up there and said, I, I wish I could tell you I really don't know. And uh, I was going back to my seat, and the audience, of course, was, at first, very delighted to hear all the new science and then very frustrated because when we came to how it was controlled by these beliefs, I wasn't able to offer anything. Yeah, As I was sitting down, I heard the next speaker. His name was Rob Williams, and uh, I wasn't even looking at him. I was just sitting in my seat, and I hear him say, I will now show you how to change that subconscious belief that Bruce was talking about. So it caught my attention. I started to sit down and listen to what this guy was saying. He yeah. talked a little bit. He asked for a volunteer in the audience that wanted to make a, a, a change. And, and it was interesting because uh, he picked this woman who, uh, who said, well, actually, she couldn't say it. She raised her hand and he selected her and says, okay, tell us what your problem was. She turned beet red and didn't, couldn't say a word. He had to leave the podium, go into the audience, and and whisper to her and find out her name. She couldn't even say her name in huh. front of the group. Obviously, the issue was she couldn't talk in public, uh -huh. and that was obvious. Everybody yeah. see she could even say her name. <laughs> she gets up in the front. Rob goes through what he calls a balance, a psyche balance. It's less than 10 minutes, and I'll remember this till the day I die. I sat there in a seat thinking, okay, well, let's see what's going to happen here. He, he, he has this woman up on the stage, turns her to the audience. We find out her name is Pauline. He says, Pauline, would you like to describe to the audience how you feel about this process we just did? 
Well, he takes his arm off her shoulder, and immediately this woman is walking back and forth in front of the audience telling a story about when she was a kid and laughing and then making a joke, and it was going on and on, and everybody in the audience, including myself, were like saucer-eyed. Here's this woman who, uh, 10 minutes ago, couldn't say her name, yeah. and the joke of it was that Rob actually had to ask her to sit down because she was using his lecture time, and, and she had to sit down. And it was funny because I, everybody was shocked that it happened, and what was more interesting is because I went back to the same seminar for the next few years, it was an annual seminar, uh, I got to see this woman for the next couple of years, and, yeah. and I was very curious. The first year, I said, well, how's your life since you've done, you know, went through that balance last year? And she said, I formed Toastmasters in my hometown. <laughs> and, and then the next year, I asked her how she was doing, and it turned out by then she had won an award for public speaking. I'll be and, and And I have to say that I was like, okay, A, I saw it happen, and B, it, it, it wasn't just a few minutes. It actually, for the next few years, her life was con- you know, profoundly changed by this little 10-minute interaction. And, and I said to Rob, I said, well, one of these days we're going to have to work together. And it took about 10 years, and then we started lecturing together for the last four years, and I love it. Because when we do workshops together, I talk about the biology, and then they do two days of learning the psyche, and, and it's a, just a thrill because I see people come in and change their lives before they leave on the weekend. And it's the most wonderful feeling to be involved with that process, to empower people to control their own lives because... Uh, for all the years I was teaching in conventional medical school, all I was talking about was victimization that, I'm sorry, that's your fate. Now it's like, it's very exciting because I see people can change their fate. That's interesting, uh, Bruce. What you mentioned about this lady, the chances are, if you go back to a little child, they're absorbing, and then all of a sudden they're able to perform. As they get older, they start doing things naturally. Maybe the same happened to this lady. Uh, she came, obviously, to seminars to learn and observe, but she had this fear about her, about uh, getting on stage and talking herself. That and there so, was some trauma in her childhood right, but that, same, that she recorded that yeah. then became a block. But it doesn't mean that she didn't have the capability no, no, to, we to, to absorb knowledge and to see how things are being done by other people. And all of oh, a sudden, with, with his technique, she was all of a sudden able to turn the switch on and just let it all come out, everything that she has picked up. And so when you say a couple of years later she wins an award for public speaking, she probably, it was her natural ability that had just never been exposed had never become out uh, that all of a sudden made her as fluid as she is uh, absolutely and what i've been you know what i've now found after all the years i've been teaching this uh, in public since 1985 before that i was teaching in medical school uh what i found in all all these years is that in reality almost all of us have all of the powers uh, and abilities to do anything that we really set our minds to. The only limitations we have are the programs in our subconscious mind that uh, are self-sabotaging or limiting that we acquired when we were kids. And and, and and it's easy to see how we get it because all you have to do is go to someplace like Kmart or, or some store like that and see it like a family pushing a cart around and then one of the children throwing a tantrum because, Mommy, Mommy, I want this toy. And we've all seen that in the store. Yeah, yeah. And then, But what have we seen the parents do in that situation? Usually they get angry and then yell at the child something like, Billy, you don't deserve that. 
Yeah. What they don't realize is if that child is less than six, that now is a hypnosis, and the child's subconscious says, I do not deserve, and that belief will be running their lives 95% of the time for the rest of their life until they change that tape. Wow, that's a great ending for this hour, Bruce, and we're going to jump on that as soon as we come back in the last hour. Folks, I hope you're enjoying it as much as I do. Uh, This is Gesundheit with Jacobus. Dr. Bruce Lipton is back with us uh, talking about his book, The Biology of Belief, Unleashing the Power of Consciousness, Matter, and Miracles. It's $25 regular price. You can find it at any bookstore in town. Stay tuned for another exciting hour. We'll be right back. Gesundheit with Jacobus, 7 to 10, Sunday mornings. Good to have you with us today. Uh, Bruce Lipton is uh, just uh, filling the air with uh, tons of information about his exciting book called The Biology of Belief. I, I, uh, I'm honored, Bruce, that you're with me. Uh, I know you're speaking all over the country, and to have you talk over here in Bozeman is, uh, is a great honor, and it's uh, so educational. Now, we have another caller on hold. Let's get the caller on. And, uh, caller, thanks so much for joining us today. There is some background noise here. I don't know if you have a radio on or something, but what is your name and how can we help you? Uh, my name is Ruth, and uh, I can't believe our good fortune in having uh, Dr. Lipton on this program. I have your book, Doctor. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, one of the highlights of the whole thing was when you had that aha experience and went back to the library and the <laughs> student said, Dr. Lipton, are you okay? <laughs> I loved it, but to, to go beyond that, uh, I had a phone call that I absolutely hung up on. I said, I will not listen to anybody but you right now. And I missed, <laughs> I missed the part on the integrating the right and the left brain uh, on uh, changing your uh, thought system. But other than that, I also want to talk to you about something that I've had experience in that might be interesting also to your readers when it comes to brain integration and spiritual healing, etc. Yes. You, are you going to give us your, are you going to tell us about that? Well, I can tell you about that. I've had the <clears throat> good fortune of working with some of the best healers in this country. One of them was Olga Worrell. I'm sure you must be familiar with her. I, I know her name, but I'm not familiar with her work directly. Well, anyway, her, her, her work was phenomenal, and uh, we did some work with her with an EEG from England called the Mind Mirror. Are you familiar with that? Yes, yes. And we found that with Olga, while she's doing clairvoyant readings or healing, she was in a high-amplitude beta And supposedly, as you know, nobody's supposed to be awake when they're in beta, unless it's small children. And uh, Uh, Delta, Delta. uh, I'm sorry, Delta. Absolutely, I'm sorry. And uh, the other thing that we discovered with her is, of course, it's a bilateral synchronicity of the left and the right brain. Yes. But one of the most interesting things about hers was she had a flat brainwave on this machine, totally. No left activity, no right activity. In other words, if she were on a strip chart recorder, she probably would have been thought to be brain dead. But she was uh, talking, she was doing clairvoyant readings, she was doing healings, and uh, there was nothing showing on the EEG at all. Well, this is the exciting part because what we've also realized, when people have what they call like an out-of-body experience, right. or in some other place, that they are, in a sense, out-of-body in regard to their well, brain that's activity. What I, that's what I've told this doctor friend of mine. I said, how many times are people declared brain dead in a hospital when maybe they're out traveling? Well, that, that's it, I guess. But uh, if they don't come back, then maybe they didn't want to come back. I don't know. But uh, but, but it, this is very important because it says that there's a consciousness that exists that is not connected to brain function. And uh, and owning this has been a very important step 
And it's very difficult because, again, it's not conventionally taught in, in uh, medical school or in psychology programs uh, that the, that the state exists. And, and, and the reason why it becomes important is, says, well, then where, where are these people if they're coming in with awareness but they're not using the mechanism of the brain to do that? They're basically, uh, earlier on the program, I mentioned something like we were like television sets with antennas receiving a broadcast. And it's interesting because in this particular case, the television set is like a neutral and the broadcast is out there dealing with the world and, and you know, the outer world in that sense, like remote viewing and things like that, uh, getting a chance to see things. It's interesting because it's also established, uh, this is established that artists and scientists, when they do their work, when they get their ahas or their intuition, they're in that particular state that you talked about. They're not even in inside their their brain. They're outside, and they bring it back in to the world once they see it. And, and it's interesting because when people are t- essentially operating outside of their brain, like you said, they they have access to information that we have no understanding of where it comes from, how it got there. Uh, people like Edgar Casey, for example, yeah. could go out. And, and find answers and, and, and identity and, and, and even diagnose people, uh, not in their physical presence, but in their energy presence that's out in the field. And, and it's important for us to own this at some point because it says, yes, there is a reality that exists outside of the physical brain, and we have the option of going there. In fact, uh, what I think from, you know, what I wrote in the book is that I think that's where we really are all the time. And yet we have the, the then the option to coming into the body and experiencing life on the planet. So I think that our lives on the planet are the, the short-term experience of stepping into a body uh-huh. and, 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 and then using that uh, to, to, to make things and do things and to create things. So uh, in this particular sense, that's what I, I concluded in the book, and especially now see it in my life, that... Uh, that Earth is like this, it's actually like heaven. <laughs> you get to step into these bodies and make and create life experiences, and we have the experience or opportunity to create heaven, but since it's a creative endeavor, we can create very positive things or we can create very negative things. And, and this is what our world, unfortunately, is involved in a lot of the negative stuff because we have really denied who we are and bought these beliefs of limitation and self-sabotage and, and the concept of wars and all this stuff, and we buy them from other people and they become our beliefs, and then collectively we manifest the belief of terror and war and trauma because individually that's our programming, but it wasn't necessarily the reality that we had to live with. We could step into the body and and choose a different kind of experience, which once I understood how it worked, that's the beautiful part that uh, Jacobus and I were just talking about. What if I go back and reprogram those negative things? What if I go back and remove the limitations that were put upon me as a child in regard to my beliefs of my limitation? Uh, and, and by doing that, then all of a sudden I'm free to create a completely different world. And that's the exciting part why if you feel some excitement coming from this end, it's because basically... I used to live in a world of teaching, victimization, fear, you know, pain, disease, and all this stuff. And once I understood that I could rewrite that, I actually changed my life. So 
I live in, in that heaven that I wanted to create. And, and it's like, wow, that was a choice. And I'm so excited by, by engaging in this choice because I didn't believe it, uh, uh, until the science revealed it to me. I wasn't spiritual. I didn't believe in any of that stuff, mm. but the science revealed it. And as you're well aware, we can use those states of spirituality to help us uh, create a better program and therefore a better life on this planet. Well, Doctor, what in the world did I miss that few minutes when you were talking about integrating the right and the left brains when it uh, had to do with changing, uh, pushing the right buttons, and that's the part I missed. And I Yeah, well, basically what I was just saying was this, is that if you want to change the tape recorder, you can't do it from the left side or the right side because, let's say, I'm on the left side and I change my, my logical a belief about something. Well, I changed the left side, but the right side is emotion, and that that never got changed. So, in a sense, while making an effort to change, if I don't change both the logic and the emotional component, then I didn't. I wasn't successful. So, basically, the the fastest way to make changes are to, as you saw, and in, in especially in that uh, mirror uh, equipment in England, uh, I can get both hemispheres to be in harmony, and when I do that, then I'm empowered. To make those changes, and how does the person do that if they don't have the equipment to give them the feedback? Uh, well, there are various ways to do that. One of them is a uh, is like an NLP, a neuro linguistic programming right. concept uh, called Brain Gym, and Brain Gym uh, basically a process of how you can uh, increase this this balance. Actually, it's a very interesting process because it can bring peace and harmony to you if you get nervous and anxious. And how you do that is. You take your legs and you cross your ankles. So like, like a lot of people sitting in a, in a comfort chair will take one ankle and cross it over the other ankle. Yeah. And if you take your hands and do the same thing, so you cross your right hand over your left hand, uh, so you're crossing your legs and you're crossing your arms, uh, this creates a, a situation that brings about brain synchrony for the simple reason. It goes like this. Uh, the left hemisphere controls the right arm. The right. right hemisphere controls the left arm. Right. So let's say I'm in my left hemisphere, I'm moving my right arm, but if I move my right arm over my midline of my body so that my right arm is now on the left side of my body, right. it, the, left, the left side was controlling the right arm, but once it moved across the midline, then the right side becomes involved with its control as well so that my left and my right hemispheres are working with my arm or my legs when they cross the midline. So let's say you're in a nervous, anxious state, and all you have to do is sit down, put your cross your, your, your ankles and cross your arms, and sit there for a short time, and you will feel a quieting of the, of the system because when you do this, you start to encourage this integration, and it actually causes a relaxation and gives you back your power when uh, when you were, uh, just before that, when you were in one side or the other and it was getting worked up, you seem to be agitated. When you get both sides working in harmony, there's a quieting of the mind. And this is a wonderful part because then clarity starts to come into your life versus the anxiety that was there just before. Well, it sounds so simple. And then what what can you do from there on? Once you're in this quiet, nice state, how do well, you do the reprogramming? You, you can, this is a state that you, you would get into to do the reprogramming in the first place because this is a state that facilitates the harmony in the left and the right brain. Right. Now the question is, well, in that state, you can do programming, uh, but it's, you have to be very careful of the programming. I'll give you an example, and people don't realize this. Let's say I, I'm having a health issue, 
And I say, I don't, I, I don't want this health issue. So um, I get into that brain balance state, and I'm trying to program a different vision. I say, I want to be healthy. So I'm programming I want to be healthy. Now, that's like going into the tape layer, okay? So today, I program I want to be healthy. Now, let's give an example. If I come back a week later and push the button on the tape player and play that tape, what, what does the tape say? I want to be healthy. Uh-huh. I come back a year later and I push the t- button. What does it say? Gotcha. I want to be healthy. Gotcha. Yeah. And the point was, well, you've only programmed the desire to be healthy, but you never programmed health. Right. And that's our issues. We have to be very careful of how we program the system because it just literally writes what we said. Uh, a friend of mine, Greg Braden, has a number of books called The Isaiah Effect, The God Code, The Lost uh, Modes of uh, Prayer, etc. And it takes us back. Uh, he brings us into history that said, in the old days when people prayed, they don't pray like we pray today. Today we pray from want. Most people say, oh, I want, I want, I need. These are my prayers that I'm coming from want. What the ancient people prayed from was as if you already had it, and then you give appreciation for it. And that's very, in our brains today, that doesn't seem to make sense. It's like if I'm sick and I'm saying, uh, I pray, uh, my prayer would say, not that I'm sick, my prayer would say, I'm very well, and thank God and, and the forces and spirits for this health. And, and it doesn't seem to make sense because you, you don't have the health. But when you start to program that into the subconscious, the subconscious programs health. And as a result, without you knowing it, the subconscious with this program says a program of health, and then it looks at the body and says, well, wait, this, the, the, I'm not in health. So the subconscious, without you even making an effort, will then start to correct the body and bring health back into it. But it would never do that if you programmed, I want to be healthy. Right. So um, it really, it, it's incumbent upon us to recognize that, unfortunately, if we go back and you consider almost all the prayers that people make, they're almost always coming from want. Right. And, uh, and that is, uh, unfortunately, uh, according to the ancients, not the way to get what you're looking for. And if you want to change your emotions and your fears and your anxieties, the same all of thing... Those Change, same way, same mm-hmm. way. Just like the, the, the case I mentioned uh, with Jacobus when I talked about the woman whose fear of public speaking, uh, when she was reprogrammed with a, with a, with a belief that, uh, that I, I, you know, essentially, the prayers essentially should be put in present tense positive statements as if they have already occurred. So she was programming, I am a, you know, a wonderful, and put some adjectives in, wonderful public lecturer. Uh, and, and it's interesting because when you're reprogramming these things, and I've been through it myself, of course, uh, it was interesting because when I get in this, what is called the whole brain position, the, you know, crossing your arms and legs, and start to download these programs, it's interesting because the first time I put in the, the, the positive present tense statement of something I wanted to, to have in my life that I didn't, when I made that in my, my mind, let's say, uh, you know, example, let's say, I am perfectly healthy. Uh, and saying that with my conscious mind, in this whole brain state, I could almost feel the noise from my nervous system saying, well, that's not true. And this is the subconscious giving me a report saying, my subconscious didn't agree with that. And when I was in that whole brain state, I'd hear this noise, and then it would fade away, and then I'd repeat the positive statement again, and then there would be some noise, but not as much, uh, Ah. like static. And then I'd repeat it again, and I'd sit in this position for five, ten minutes, and at some point, I could actually feel a wholeness that all of a sudden I'd make the statement, and rather than any noise, 
I'd almost feel like, okay, so, yeah, sure, right. So, so <laughs> you know, like my brain accepted that. And all of a sudden I realized there was no resistance. Huh. And then I realized that is the point where the program has been rewritten because making this statement, now even the subconscious was in agreement. And when that happened, then that is the first step. So everything falls into place so simply if we just know the right thing to do. But what did, Rob, what did Rob Williams do to this lady in those few instance, instances that, she, that he had her on stage so quickly? Well, what? basically, he he, uh, he just checked in with her subconscious belief system using kinesiology. Okay, gotcha. And, and said, ask a statement. Uh, she she would make the positive statement. I am a you know a wonderful public lecturer. And then she'd do a muscle test. And of course, uh, that wasn't what her subconscious thought at all. And so, uh, and it's the subconscious that controls the muscle test. And this is how kinesiology essentially works: is right. you make a statement with your conscious mind, and then your subconscious mind references that and says it agrees with it or doesn't. And if the subconscious mind has a different belief. Then, then what you just said with your conscious mind, then you're in a state of momentary conflict where the conscious mind said this, the subconscious mind said something completely different. In a state of conflict, the, we lose muscle strength. And that's what the test is all about. The test is, is this statement uh, that you just made with your conscious mind, does your subconscious mind agree with it, yes or no? If it agrees with it, then the muscle test is strong because there's no disharmony. But if your subconscious has a different opinion and you do the muscle test, you get a weak muscle response because of the conflict between what the conscious mind just said and what the subconscious mind believes. And that's how kinesiology lets you know what you believe in your subconscious mind. So he did that first, and then it was a, a, an agreed-upon understanding that Pauline recognized that her subconscious mind did not believe that. So she then got involved in the whole brain posture and got involved with downloading the statement. And just as I mentioned, she had to go through a period of like reprogramming the subconscious to this statement. And the noise that I heard like and that other people experience is more or less all the experiences of our lives that made us commit to that, that belief the subconscious has. When the conscious mind tries to change it, the subconscious mind brings up all these experiences as noise. Like, that's not true. That's not the way we know it. That's not the way we learned it. And yet, with the just the calm repetition of the statement, the subconscious mind finally reprograms itself. And then when you do a muscle test after this, you add, then you make the statement, uh, I am a wonderful public speaker. And if the subconscious mind has finally learned that, when you make that statement, you will have strength in the kinesiology, and that's proof that you've just changed the belief. Well, it almost goes back to uh, Schultz, isn't it? Uh, every day in every way, I'm getting better and better. Well, yes, but you have to make sure your right and your left hemispheres are, are, are agreeing. Exactly, <laughs> and that sounds like the most wonderfully simple way to do it that you have elucidated here. Well, well Ruth, that's thank the beautiful you. part. It is simple. <laughs> thank you very much for the input, Ruth. Thank you. Uh, thank thanks you, for listening. All right, my God, uh, we only got about 20 minutes left or so with Dr. Bruce Lipton. I hope you stay tuned to uh, exciting stuff and questions to come. Folks, we will be right back. Resume tight with Jacobus. It's all about health matters. Keeping a finger on the pulse of health research, this is Gesundheit with Jacobus. All right, and welcome back to the last half hour already of uh, this second show here with uh, Dr. Bruce Lipton. 
the website is brucelipton.com, brucelipton.com. And uh, Bruce, I know we have little time and so much to talk about, and it's uh, it's always with you. <laughs> it almost invite I, I want to invite you already for a third program because there are so many questions that come up that I'm writing down comments. I hear you say that I go like I would really, really would like to tap into this. Are you still? I think we have him down here, Bruce. Are you there? Yes, I am. All righty. Well, I guess we kept the volume down on you <laughs> to, to give me a chance to talk. No, <laughs> Bruce. I want to ask you something. Last week, I had a medical doctor on who was a child psychiatrist, uh, Doctor John Topper from uh, the Schroeder Children's Hospital in Helena, and a wonderful guest. A lot of information. And one thing that he asked me that he would like to touch on in his uh, in his talk, and we didn't get a whole lot of done stuff done about that, was the combination of spirituality and psychiatry. And he says from what he has learned from information that has come to him and what he has observed from working with children and with different disorders, obviously he deals with children with uh, who have uh, um, fetal alcohol syndrome, uh, who are born from children with, uh, who've been using meth or other drugs that has severely affected these children's brain and it makes it very hard for them to function in today's world. And so he is looking uh, as a psychiatrist, obviously he is working a lot with medication and he worked with them till they're about 18 years old. And I asked him if there are actually children while he's working with them that eventually are healed and can move on, live on their own. And he, he stopped for a second. He said, no, they actually move into the adult system after 18. What he is seeing in his, in his studies and in his own personal interest is that there is indeed more to the whole field of psychology and psychiatry. And it, it, uh, he is struggling with the fact that he all of a sudden has this knowledge, but he is not able because of his field that he is in as a medical doctor, what is being expected of him to implement that in his daily practices. He knows there is more out there as you're talking about the electrical field that is around us that is not always scientifically being explained. And he says, you know, as a scientist, and here, and that's why I gave him your book, and he is really enjoying it. Uh, he said that, by the way, and for for people like that who are psychiatrists, who are medical doctors, who are totally into science, like you have been for so long, and you still are, um, how can he make changes, maybe in his practice, without getting sued? for making changes? That is my first question. My second question is, what are some of the other reactions that you get from people in the mental health field and the emotional field about the discoveries that you and some of your colleagues have done on the field of biology? Well, your first question is very, very important. Is that what can we do if we find that the, the path we've been on isn't actually facilitating healing and we'd like to make changes? And the answer is it's very difficult for this reason. The American Medical Association, called the AMA, uh, we, we at some level as a pedestrian looking at them think, oh, the, the, these are the, you know, the people that uh, make decisions about medicine and they're, you know, they know all this stuff like that and they make the rules. It turns out the AMA is a union. That's exactly what it mm -hmm. is to encourage and support the activities of its members, which are the medical profession. Now, here's another interesting uh, fact. Uh, 80% of doctors do not belong to the AMA. 
And so all of a sudden you have a union which is comprised of less than 20% of the, of, of the people in the union uh, that, uh, wow. that are in the field uh, making decisions for all the rest of the field. Wow. There's an unfortunate situation because it has been revealed and reported in journals everywhere that there has been an unholy connection between the pharmaceutical industry and the American Medical Association mm-hmm. so that um, the interest of this uh, industry that sells drugs uh, is influencing the the behavior and practice uh, of the doctors via the AMA. It's an unholy alliance and it's an unfortunate situation. And they create, the AMA has created what, uh, something like a standards and practice organization where they say, these are the legitimate ways of treating a patient. And why this becomes important is because they make these rules, then the doctors have to follow these rules, that if they vary from these rules, this organization can go into a doctor's office and yank their their diploma off the wall and, and their license and prevent them from practicing. Yeah. So all of a sudden you realize, well, wait a minute, this is this system is contaminated by its association with the drug companies to push drugs as a standard operating process. And it's interesting because, for example, they're in the process that if a patient comes in and they don't get a drug in response to what they're looking for, that almost is a violation of the program. And, mm-hmm. and that doctors give drugs to people actually knowing that the drugs aren't actually useful at all. Yeah. But have to do it because if they don't give the drug, then they're liable for, for let's say a patient comes back and says, well, doctor, I was here and you examined me and you didn't give me a drug and look, I'm sick. Then this doctor becomes liable for, for, you know, uh, malpractice. And so they give drugs out of standard operating, you know, process. And it's interesting, for example, when people come in with a cold, they frequently get antibiotics. Yeah. And the reason is because, well, I'm going to give you this antibiotic, but here's the fact. A, the doctors know that the cold is caused by viruses, and B, that antibiotics do not actually attack or, or eliminate viruses. So they give the drug knowing that the drug doesn't actually uh, actually influence the virus. But if they didn't give a drug and something went wrong with that patient, then they would be guilty of malpractice. So they give the drug even knowing that it could interfere with the patient. In fact, antibiotics are, are definitely interfering with our systems uh, because they, they kill bacteria. And indiscriminately in this regard, this is where it becomes a problem, that we would not be able to survive if we didn't have a normal population of bacteria in our gut because they're, they're the symbionts that help us live. They help us in the digestion process. They help us get vitamins. They influence our biology. Hmm. And yet we've gotten to the concept, oh, well, just give antibiotics. And it's like, oh, my God, we're upsetting the balance of nature that taking the drugs frequently makes things worse. Uh, interesting fact, there was a, a man, Lauren Mosier, who was head of, uh, I think, the uh, uh, some neurology department at the National Institute of Health, I read a paper by him which supports exactly what your Dr. Tupper talked about. Yeah. Uh, he actually uh, was re- he resigned from the NIH because when he wrote his paper, he wrote a fact. He said that ever since we've introduced all these modern drugs in psychology, 
we have actually done worse in regard to the patients, meaning before the, all the drugs showed up, people actually could go for a psychology, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, therapy and show improvement. But as Dr. Tupper pointed out and as Dr. Uh, Mosher wrote about, ever since we got these drugs, even that has disappeared, that actually no one is getting healed, but what we are doing is making drug addicts, yeah. that we're not helping them, we're just giving them drugs, and they never get off of the drugs because we've never created a healing. Right, plus plus what I want to jump on, uh, jump on here is that they have seen that obviously a lot of antidepressant drugs are increasing the risk of suicide. Yes, uh, this is an unfortunate situation. It is an established fact, especially in young children, that when younger people are on these drugs and then they actually try to get off of these drugs, that it leads to very severe depression and suicidal tendencies. And now here's a fact that most of the school shootings like Columbine were uh, generated by kids who were on or weaning themselves off of these uh, uh, SSRI drugs like Prozac or Zoloft or Paxil. Yeah. And so it turns out we already know that's a side effect. And and yet, and, and here's the other thing. This is like, oh, my God. Um, it has been uh, the information that the drug companies used in, in patenting and securing their drugs uh, was uh, released to a, uh, a Dr. Kirsch from uh, University of Connecticut, a psy- psychologist at the university, who tried to get the information on the um, on the studies of these drugs before they were approved, and he couldn't get them from the drug companies. They wouldn't even give them to him. But he got them through the Freedom of Information Act via the government. Yeah. And when he got them, it was a shock, and it, it was published in papers all over the place that the results of the drug studies on things like Zoloft and Prozac reveal that the drugs are no more effective than a sugar pill. Wow. And this is an established scientific fact. And it's fun because if you if you know people who are on these drugs and their lives are profoundly changed, they, 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 they say, oh, no, the drug made my life okay. And, and it's interesting because this is they've done studies on this and found out that it wasn't the drug that made them okay. It was the result of the placebo effect. Wow. That believing that this was the cure, they take the drug and in that belief heal themselves, even though the, sh- the drug, as demonstrated by science, is no more effective than a sugar pill. But, in fact, it actually is a little more, it's a better placebo than a sugar pill for this reason. You take a sugar pill, and it's only your belief that is saying that there's medicine working. You take uh, something like Prozac. It's the equivalent of a sugar pill, but it has side effects that you can physiologically feel in your body, like a, a jangling of the nerves and things like that. So it's not to, it's better than a regular sugar pill because when the patient takes it, not only do they feel they're taking a drug, but they actually can feel something going on, so that enhances the placebo effect. It makes it even a better placebo because the mind is encouraged by saying, yeah, I did take the drug. I feel it. (laughs) And yet it turns out in regard to the effectiveness of what it's supposed to do, no, it's the equivalent of a sugar pill. You know, Dr. Topper actually mentioned the placebo thing also, and he said that uh, with with medication, it showed that 50% of the people reacted well on the placebo effect, but 60% reacted well also on the prescription drug, thereby 
telling the drug companies to say it's slightly more effective, so we got to keep pushing it, and that is why we're connected with these doctors. We keep telling them, push the prescription drugs. Right, and yet that's why Lauren Mosier, who was part of the NIH and resigned and wrote the whole paper, says, in a review of all of the studies, in the end, bottom line, what has been the consequence of all the development of all these neuropsychotropic drugs? Have they helped the situation or not? And the answer is no. They not only they didn't even help the situation, but worse than that is that it actually, uh, with the introduction of all these drugs, uh, even removed the fact that many people at least were able to be helped before the drugs, but after the drugs, no. So uh, it's an interesting situation. It's a marketing thing. Uh, I, I Listen, I, I'm very much not in support of the pharmaceutical industry after being involved with research, uh, especially seeing how they manipulate the research. And there are articles in journals like the British Medical Journal had a whole section on. It was interesting when they did studies on drug effectiveness, they checked the results of studies when the studies were done by independent people or when the studies were done by people connected to the drug company, and they found that when drug companies funded the research, they got positive results four times more than when the same research was carried out by people who were not connected to the drug company. Wow. So basically, uh, there's this whole thing about pushing drugs, and, and here's a, here's a, this is the thing that just irritates me. Because for, so, for example, we know that these SSRI drugs like Prozac and, and Paxil and so on are not biologically effective, that they are uh, basically placebo drugs, but we also know this, is that there is a negative effect upon their removal, so especially with children. And yet, in spite of the fact that it's a placebo, and in spite of the fact that we know it has negative consequences, it is prescribed like crazy because it's called standard operating procedure. Yes. And, and, and so we are poisoning the population because of the connection between the AMA and the pharmaceutical industry. It's not the medical doctors. It's a very important point. God, I really want to make that point if, before we leave, and that is this. The leading cause of death in the United States today is called iatrogenic illness. And that means illness created by medical procedures. So it says like this, a person has a problem, let's say problem A, they go to a medical practitioner, get treated for A, but die from problem B, something that was a result of the treatment. So it turns out the third leading cause of death by numbers is uh, uh, cancer. Mm -hmm. The second leading cause of death is cardiovascular disease. And the leading cause of death is iatrogenic or medical-related illness. And, and it's interesting because it had nothing to do with the medical doctors, but everything to do with the, with the research and academics uh, uh, teaching the medical doctors. So basically... If I withhold information or do not do an adequate job of my teaching of how life works, then my trainees, my MDs, my doctors don't have a full working knowledge. And and this has been the problem because the knowledge in academia and medical school is manipulated and controlled by the interests of the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. And now it's it's a corrupt situation. And the doctors are the ones that are caught in the middle of all this because they're the ones that are working with the patients, but they're working with a very limited knowledge and using drugs that are actually totally detrimental to the system. Mm -hmm. In fact, a friend of mine was an executive at Johnson & Johnson, 
and found out this fact before she resigned. I mean, she just resigned because she realized what she'd gotten into, that number one, when a new drug is made and there are side effects and that the side effects could lead to death, then the interesting factor that the drug companies is they do a mathematical factor and they say, how many people will die from this drug and versus how much money they will make from the profits of the drug. Hmm. And there's a, a range where if a certain number of people die and they can make enough money, then they allow the drug, figuring that with the profits, they'll pay the lawsuits from the deaths and still make profit. So basically, they're selling drugs that they don't kill people, but if it's okay, if you can make enough profit, <laughs> then yes. you can pay off that. Yes. And, and the last thing she told me that was the thing that really caused her to leave was they actually, because she was following uh, a lot of the research on drugs they were testing, they actually have very effective drugs that can actually uh, stop a lot of the issues that we've been working with, and yet they don't make them because if they make these very effective drugs, then then the people get healed, then they don't sell the drugs. So they may they they prefer to put those effective drugs on the shelf, and they sell drugs that are less effective, because then they can sell more of them and yes. make more money. And basically, then you have to stop and say, are these people for us or against us? And it turns out, medical doctors are there to try to help people, but their limitations are imposed by things like the pharmaceutical company whose job it is to make money. If if we healed people and the pharmaceutical companies then didn't have any patients, uh, it would be the same as what happens if there's so much peace and we have a military, what are they going to do? Uh, the same thing applies to the drug company. Um, they just they sell drugs. That's yeah. what they do. So it's not a health industry. It's an industry that makes it's, money based exactly. on disease. That's right, and that's the way our government works too. Government is a business. People forget that at times, and doctors are in business also. And I want to remind our listeners, we got about five minutes left with Bruce Lipton, so if you want to get a call in, 5870171 is the number. This is Gesundheit with Jacobus. Bruce Lipton is my guest today talking about his great book, The Biology of Belief. Bruce, one of the things that you mentioned in the first program, you stated, we are all equally powerful in our own creative power. So we but we have today we have powerful people versus unpowerful people. And you say people actually take power away from other people, creating victims. When you talk about medicine, the way we have put doctors on a pedestal that they know more about our body than we feel on a daily basis is one of these examples. And you say if we try to take it back or buy it back we usually never get a good deal. Obviously, um, we are misled in what is healthy, what is not healthy. We are often misled into a modality that is not geared towards uh, re um, uh, recharging and renewing the entire system, just a partial part of our body. And because of that, other parts of our body could suffer and we're not really getting the good deal that we like. Um, obviously, education is key. We need to learn more about what we can do. We need, to, we need to read a book like yours. We need to talk to more people about different modalities that are out there, experience those. And I think we'll, we'll find, we'll feel better about ourselves, about our own creativity. We feel better because we actually start seeing changes from another modality. And I think once we have that experience, it will radiate from us and it will start affecting people around us. And bit by bit, we can make this a healthier society. Is that something you agree with? 
Uh, absolutely. In fact, this is what we started to recognize in the medical profession, uh, not, not the doctors, really. It's the, the union people. Uh, we're very upset by this fact that uh, over the last number of years, more and more people are seeking complementary forms of healing than are going to conventional doctors. But here is the problem. The problem is not only are they going to see these alternative healers, but they're getting relief from them to the extent that when they, they their, their response to, to these treatments is so good that they start telling all their friends. Mm-hmm. And the net result is more and more people are seeking these complementary healers because they appear to be more effective, uh, at least in the response. And so it's over now, 50% of the people in this this country would, given the option, seek a complementary healer before going to the conventional uh, allopathic doctor. And again, it's not the doctor's fault. It's just that they have not been given a fully adequate education about how biology works, so they operate from uh, an incomplete awareness. And and that incomplete awareness is, is involving uh, a lot to do with the fact that uh, the pharmaceutical industry is protecting their interests by limiting the education that doctors get. Bruce, I'm going to do you a big injustice by asking you a question that uh, that I know is going to take you a lot longer than the two minutes that you have left. But we haven't really talked about the hypothalamus-pituitary-adrenal connection. And and I know that could open up a can of worms, not a can of worms, but that could be a show on its own itself. On is its the, own, that, that's, that's the, the, that, that mechanism, which is referred to as the HPA, hypothalamus-pituitary-adrenal axis, is the switch that when we get afraid or concerned or are scared in any way, that switch is engaged to prepare us for fight or flight. And and the problem with activating that switch is um, the body is designed for growth and it also is able to protect itself. But if we get into a protection mode, fight or flight, then the energy of the body is redistributed for the fight or flight. And and the other processes such as growth become compromised because you can't fund everything. And the result about that is the more afraid we are of life, the more our concerns and fears are manifesting, the more we keep shunting our energy into the fight or flight, get ready to move, be afraid mode. And the more we do that, the more we take away the fuel and energy of keeping our body in health and maintaining ourselves. So in fact, a truth that when we become stressed, we shut off not only the growth mechanisms that that are required to keep us alive every day, but we also shut off the immune system. So uh, fear makes us sick uh, for two reasons. One, because we stop maintaining the body's uh, uh, mechanism, and secondarily, we shut off or curtail the immune system because we're trying to get the energy for fight or flight, which is we're not concerned about bacteria. If you're chased by a lot, if you're being chased by a lion, a bacterial infection is not a big deal. If you're being chased by Al Qaeda, bacterial infection is not a big deal. If you're concerned that your job might not be there and that your future is in, in an uncertain state, uh, then again, the immune system's function is not a big deal. We compromise our health when we're in fear, and that's the primary issues that face our country today is that we're in such high levels of stress that we've compromised growth in the immune system and are paying for it with illness. 
Wow. I want to finish up with a quote that you did on page 185 of your book. It says, When science turned away from spirit, its mission dramatically changed. Instead of trying to understand the natural order so that human beings can live in harmony with that order, modern science embarked on a goal of control and domination of nature. The technology that has resulted from pursuing this philosophy has brought human civilization to the brink of spontaneous combustion by disrupting the web of nature. Bruce, thank you so much for being here. All the best to your work, and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. I so appreciate it. Thank you and your audience. Jacobus. All right. Thank you. Folks, we'll be back next week, Sunday, 7 to 10. Gazoon tight with Jacobus. Integrative health at your fingertips.